You're listening to Fit in Focus, a podcast from Fitbit, where we talk about all things health and wellness, from the science and business of health to what motivates people on their own health journey. Hi, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of Fit and Focus. I'm your co-host, Andrea Holing, and I'm joined as always by Eric Friedman, co-founder and CTO of Fitbit. Welcome, everyone. I'm really excited about today's episode. We're going to talk about all things sleep. We'll be covering everything from why we sleep to why we sometimes cannot sleep. Sleep occupies a fascinating intersection between our body and our mind. And yes, we'll dig into why many of us have dreamt that we forgot to go to class and now have a big exam. We're speaking with Dr. Michael Grander, who is the director of the Sleep and Health Research Program at the University of Arizona and the director of the Behavioral Sleep Medicine Clinic at the Banner University Medical Center. Dr. Grander, welcome to Fit and Focus. I guess before we get started, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? So I'm a clinical psychologist by training. Uh, my background has always been in sleep health. So ever since, even before graduate school, that's been my interest. So I'm, as a clinical psychologist, I run a clinic. I see patients for sleep disorders. But my main day job is research, where I run the sleep and health research program at the University of Arizona, where most of, most of our day is running studies, writing grants, writing papers. Um, and doing research projects, studying how sleep is related to real-world health and wellness, and, and how sleep is an important part of the overall picture of health. Why did you pick sleep? Why not? It's the coolest thing ever, isn't it? Um, no, I mean, really, I didn't, I didn't know that, you know, talking about sleep all day and learning about how sleep works in the brain and all this stuff... I didn't know that was a job that you could like have, right? But when I was in uh, when I was in college, um, so I worked at uh, uh, the bookstore back in the day when mall bookstores existed, and uh, I worked at one of those. That was my job. And every time we got a book in about sleep or dreams, I would always read it. You know, when I was in high school and in college, I thought it was the coolest thing ever just to learn about. I just thought it was very cool. And um, then I found out. Uh, on campus, we actually had a sleep research lab, like who knew, and uh, at the medical center. And so, and it turns out that one of the people running that program was teaching an undergraduate course in sleep that next semester. And so I was like first in line to sign up. I thought, great, I could, here's a class on that thing I think is really cool. And so I took it and, um, you know, the rest is sort of history where I volunteered to work in the lab and then, you know, learn how to do sleep research and learn that this was a thing and that you can um, uh, get an academic appointment to be a researcher and go to grad school and go from there. Why do humans actually sleep in the first place? Well, so I get the question a lot about why do we sleep? And any good sleep scientist knows that the correct answer to that question is, well, we sure we still surely don't know why we we sleep, but we're still learning. But the answer is actually that's wrong. We do know why we sleep. Um, it's just the answer isn't terribly interesting. We sleep because it's part of our biology and it's a fundamental part of how we're built. We sleep for the same reason we eat. Um, we sleep for the same reason we breathe. Um, it's a biological requirement of life. Um, but that's not the interesting answer. The interesting answer and, and the real question people are asking is, what are all the different things that sleep is for and that it does? And, you know, it is true. We don't know every function of sleep. We don't know every benefit of sleep. We don't know exactly how every aspect of sleep works. But I mean, 
to be honest, we don't know everything about how skin works either. You know, we don't know everything about anything, but we do know a lot. So it looks like one of the main reasons that we sleep is really just because there's certain things our body can do when we're asleep that's much better at doing them when we're awake. You know, when we're awake, we're engaging with the world. Like, what is the purpose of sleep? What's the purpose of being awake? The purpose of being awake is engaging with the world, finding food, shelter, um, relationships, all these sorts of things. And when we're out engaging with the world, it's not, uh, it's not as efficient to be doing certain maintenance functions in the body too. So we're constantly mm-hmm. being bombarded by the environment during the day. And at night is when we integrate uh, that information at night. So we sleep because we're very active during the day. And at night, there are many things in our body that are much more efficiently done when we're isolated from the environment and, and sort of not moving. We spend a lot of time working with sleep researchers at Fitbit, and we've noticed that when they review sleep data, they don't always agree on when a user might be asleep or awake. Is there actually a formal definition of what it means to be asleep? Yeah, what is sleep? Um, Sleep is really hard to measure because when you think about it, we can't actually measure it directly. We have to guess at what, what it's doing by looking at signals that are related to sleep, but they're not actually what sleep is. So what is sleep? Sleep is a collection of states in the brain and the body that are driven by systems deep in the brain that control whether you are what is called awake versus what is called asleep and and different types of wake and different types of sleep. That's controlled very deep in the brain. But what sleep is, it's a collection of states where you are perceptually disengaged, which means um, you're not really seeing, hearing, smelling, touching, tasting. Those senses still work. I mean, you can go up to a sleeping person and say their name and it'll wake up because uh, it'll wake them up because they still heard. It's just they're disengaged from the environment. They're not going to respond to sounds. They're not really seeing what's going on around them. They're perceptually disengaged. Um, they're, they have um, reduced consciousness. You're not, it, during various stages of sleep, you may be more or less unconscious, but you're mostly unconscious. Uh, you're not having conscious thought. You're not perceiving the passage of time. You're not forming new memories. So you have a perceptual disengagement. You have a lack of consciousness, lack of responsivity to the environment. You're usually laying down, not moving. Um, you know, the, the lack of movement in sleep is so reliable. That's what the, some of the foundation of the sleep tracking is built on, is the fact that you're just not moving when you're sleeping. Um, and there's other things that sort of go along with it, but it's also naturally recurring and it's rhythmic and it's easily reversible, unlike other states of unconsciousness. I mean, what other state of unconsciousness? Think of, you know, um, a coma or when you're in a delirium or passed out from a medication or something, you know, where can you go up to somebody and snap your fingers and then all of a sudden they're not in a coma anymore? Like it doesn't work that way, but with sleep it does. Isn't that amazing? It's pretty incredible. <laughs> yeah, we have this total other state of consciousness with all these other rules of how the body works that can be reversed in an instant because of the environment. Um, so that's what sleep is. It's this collection of complex states. And then how do we measure it? Well, we can measure it with brainwave activity, which is really measuring uh, one certain kind of electrical activity just on the very outer layers of the brain, which again, that's not where sleep lives. Sleep lives deep in the brain, but it signals uh, are loudly heard on the outside of the brain. And so it, it probably correlates very well with what's going on underneath the surface, but it's not a perfect measure. Uh, and even still, brainwave technology, you're talking about 1930s, 1940s level technology that we've improved over the years, but the foundations are still relatively basic. We're just 
you know, measuring the electrical activity that we're perceiving and we're guessing as to what it means. So it's like we, we know there's a conversation going on in another room in a language we've never heard before and can never totally understand, but we have our ear pressed against the wall trying to figure out what's going on. And in humans, you know, in other animals, you know, you can put probes in the brain and measure different things. And in humans, you know, they tend not to like that when you stick things into their brain. So we usually do these things on the outside and measure it in a lab. But even still, it's, it's a little messy. The signal isn't perfect. And the correlation with what sleep is isn't even totally perfect. So even, you know, you look at the same brain wave recordings and, and even technologists with decades of experience, they won't agree 100% of the time as to which minute is sleep and which minute is wake because it's all, there's rules, but it, it's a little fuzzy. Traditionally, it's been movement. So since the 1970s, we've used movement tracking to determine whether someone was awake or asleep. What a lot of people don't realize, this goes back to the early 1970s. This is also relatively old technology, been modernized. But the principle is the same, is that when you're asleep, your movement patterns are systematically different from when you're awake. You still move a little bit, um, but, and, it's, and you, there are times when you're awake that you don't move, but there's a certain signal that's a little bit different in movement. And looking at this signal, you know, the correlation you know, it's been very high between even just plain old 1970s, 80s movement tracking and looking at brainwaves at the exact same time. Those two, even though neither one is perfect, you know, in an ideal situation, they'll agree more than 90% of the time. And now you have newer devices that are including things like heart rate and other signals. And, you know, the data is still coming in, but it looks like that might even be better than just movement alone. Um, so that's another thing we use to measure sleep in the real world, where brainwave activity you can't really measure that well in the real world. But you can measure movement and things, and that'll capture sleep over time. But then also, um, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention the third most important way to track sleep, and that's actually asking people. You know, in, in clinic, our standard is actually having people keep a sleep log of when they went to bed, how long they take to fall asleep, how many awakenings they had, for how long, and when they get up where they're just tracking the timeline of their night. And you'd think that's less accurate than sort of a tracker or something. But you got to remember, the tracker and even the brain waves aren't measuring exactly what sleep is. They're measuring a biological phenomenon that's correlated with sleep, but isn't exactly sleep. And there are things that it misses, particularly in people who have insomnia. And so I want to go more into sleep stages in a bit, but uh, I'm curious, it's building off the whole kind of people's perception of sleep. You know, I, I know sleep is very restorative. It's like when the body heals wounds and things like that. For people who have insomnia where, you know, clinically we're saying they're asleep, but they don't feel like they're asleep and they can report kind of waking up. Are they getting, like, is that restorative power happening during that time for them or is it not? Well, the answer probably is, um, see, when you ask a scientist, the answer is always, well, kind of, it depends and not totally, but not no either. Um, but the answer is there are a lot of restorative functions of sleep. Many of them get impeded by these things where people with, people often wake up feeling not refreshed. And when I have patients in clinic where that's a, a major complaint of theirs, where this is something they're struggling with is I wake up and I don't feel refreshed. I feel like, why did I even sleep at all sometimes? Um, when I think of what are the most common causes, it's usually that there was something under the surface that kept their sleep artificially shallow. Whether it's 
something external to them like noise or light or a bed partner that snores or rolls over or a pet in the room or something. Could be that. Um, but it could, often it's also something internal, something like an untreated sleep disorder or pain, you know, someone with a chronic pain or another medical issue where their body never quite gets to the point where it can totally detach and let go. And, and because of that, they wake up feeling like they didn't really get what they paid for, right? You know, they, they, I paid for a whole night, but I feel like I only got a couple hours. And I think that that might explain that, that experience where sleep is, is not a black and white thing. It's not, yes, or either I was asleep or I wasn't. To some degree it is, but there are many shades uh, of sleep. You can get sleep that is more restorative than not. You can get shallower sleep versus deeper sleep. Um, and, and I think you're right. I think a lot of people who, who feel like their sleep just isn't good quality, it might be that there's something, there's a barrier in the way. And it seems like there's a difference, you know, between this idea of maybe your, your brain did get some of it right, right? Like you, you did get this sleep and, and you maybe cached your memories or some of the other things that we can talk more about, but there's like a perception of, of sort of lethargy and tiredness that can be disconnected. And is that what you can see often as well too? Like maybe someone's feeling of restfulness is very different than sort of what really happened in their brain. Is that a level of detail we can kind of see in, in sleep science today? Yeah. I mean, and that's, so whenever I do a, a study, that's why I always try and measure sleep from as many different angles as possible. Because mm -hmm. again, I'm never measuring it directly. I always have to measure it from an angle um, and, and hope I catch it. And so if I measure, th measure it from as many angles as I can, I can get as much of a complete picture as possible. And to me, I guess as a scientist, the fun part is where they disagree. Like where, the, where, all, the, where all the measurements all agree with each other, well, that's relatively uninteresting. But why did they disagree? Why did one see something that the other one didn't? What, what shows up from this angle that doesn't show up from this angle? Um, and, and, you know, and, and I think as long as, we're, as long as we're humble with our measurements and know that nothing is perfect, that's why, we get, that's why in studies we don't have studies of one person. We have studies of as many people as we can find and average them together and hope that you know, the outliers were sort of cancel themselves out and actually the, the truth will aggregate out of the middle somewhere. Uh, and, and hopefully we'll have some semblance of what the actual truth is. Um, but yeah, like none of these measures are perfect. And, and anybody who's tracking their sleep in any way, I would, I would challenge them to think about not, on the one hand, not relying on their own perception as 100% of the story because there's lots that happens that you're not aware of but also not relying on some external devices 100% of the story either because both of them are relatively limited views. And together it's super powerful because they both can capture things that the other one can't and that can tell you a lot about yourself. I think we're all steeped in, like you especially think a lot about the different <laughs> sleep stages. I, I, you know, in the Fitbit app, we talk about light sleep, deep sleep, and REM sleep. Um, most people think about you know, REM sleep and dreaming. For A, for the listeners, I'd love to get the over, brief overview of yeah. what those stages are. And then I want to talk about kind of how people come in and out of those stages. Sure. So here's the, uh, the crash course on sleep stages. Um, so you start out the night awake. And, and wake is actually sort of a sleep stage because it interacts with some of the others. But wake is, by definition, not asleep. It could be drowsy. Um, drowsy wakefulness is different sort of brainwave activity than, than sleep and different from more alert wakefulness. So you have a wake, 
And then the next thing that happens is you get into a light sleep. And usually this is, is what we call stage one. So stage one sleep is very light. It's meant mostly as a transitionary stage. It's got elements of drowsy wakefulness in it, uh, but it is sleep. Um, it's not restorative, but it's usually where you get like the hypnic jerks and sleep starts for suddenly jumping as you fall asleep, feeling like, oh, I dreamt I was falling or something. Um, that's called a hypnic jerk or a sleep start. And that happens during stage one sleep. We can talk about potentially why, but, but really it's, it's medically harmless and, and it's very common. Uh, if you, someone is in stage one sleep and you woke them up, uh, they would think that they were just awake. They, didn't, they don't really feel like they were asleep just then. They think that they were just awake, but they actually were asleep. And they weren't attending to the environment, even if they remembered doing so. Um, so you should only be getting very little bit of stage one sleep across the night, just as sort of you're transitioning into sleep and maybe out of sleep or if you're going in and out across the night. Then you get into stage two. So stage two sleep is also relatively light. It is, it is I like to call it vanilla sleep, where it's more than 50% of the night will be stage two. Most of the work of sleep can probably get done in stage two, except for what your body apparently needs either deep sleep for or REM sleep for. Um, brainwave activity is much more slowed versus daytime, but it's not ultra slowed like deep sleep. Um, you're usually not dreaming in this sleep. Um, you could. It's relatively easy to wake up from, but you, know, you are protected from the environment. It's regular vanilla sleep. Uh, you're in that relatively briefly at first, though, and then you drop down into what we call deep sleep or stage three. So deep sleep is called that because your muscles are extremely relaxed. Um, this is this is the the most um, one of the most relaxed states you could be in. Your muscles just have no instruction to move; they're just you're, they're just sort of a lump. The brain actually also goes through something important too, where it looks like that the thinking parts of your brain are are largely offline. You're not really thinking anything. Um, deeper parts of your brain are still working um, and your body is still working where this is where you get a peak of uh, growth hormone production, for example. Um, this is thought to be a time where a, there's a lot of you know, cellular and muscle repair going on. Um, it's important for memory. Um, it's important for um, a lot of these physical healing, restoration sort of processes in deep sleep. Um, it's also really hard to wake someone up from deep sleep. If you've ever woken up from deep sleep, you know it's A, it's been hard to wake you up, but you wake up extremely disoriented. Like you yeah. don't know where you are or what's going on at first. And you can be really irritable very quickly. Mm -hmm. So that's deep sleep. Um, so then you're in that for a little bit. Then you come back into light sleep and then you might get a REM episode. So REM sleep is often misunderstood. It's not a deep sleep stage at all. It's actually quite light. If anything, um, it used to be thought of as actually a form of stage one, as being super light sleep. It's actually very relatively easy to wake someone up from REM sleep. Um, your body in REM sleep is actually actively paralyzed. Unlike deep sleep where you're super relaxed because you don't, you're, you're resting. It's a much more restful stage. REM sleep, you're actually actively paralyzed. You cannot move if you want to. Um, the reason for this, this is also where the more complex dreams happen. Dreams with plots and emotions, and your brain wants to act them out. Um, but, you're, but there's a part deep in your brain that knows it's just a dream and paralyzes you, makes it so you can't. Because otherwise, you'd be acting out your dreams. You know, so a lot of times you see people dreaming and, and you might get a little twitch or, or, or a sound coming out. 
where they're breaking through that paralysis, but only briefly. Let's talk more about REM sleep. What happens in the brain during REM sleep? There's lots of interesting things that happen in the body and in the brain that only really occur during REM sleep. It seems to be a very unique state. Um, dreaming might actually just be a consequence of all these really interesting thing that hap- things that happen to brain networks and learning processes and memory formation and memory integration. So integration of memory is something that REM sleep seems to be very important for. And by integration, I mean, how do you take what it is that you know and put it into the background of your experience? How, do, how does knowledge and memory become experience? Like what is experience? So why is it that you like the things you like, don't like the things you don't like, have preferences, have um, hopes, dreams, goals, uh, setbacks? What are all these things to you? They're really how your experiences have shaped who you are. And what is that? Experiences shaping who you are is your experiences being encoded into your memory, being filtered through emotion systems that regulate how important they are and how you react to them and how you connect them to other memories and other experiences and filter that through emotion and what's important and what's not important and how it makes you feel. And and all of that comes together to really create the backdrop of who you are. And REM sleep seems to be very important about that, where when you're going through the day, there are rules to the universe, right? You know, a house is a house and it continues to be a house even when you're not looking at it. And even if you are looking at it, it's not going to become a car uh, or a person, and which is not going to become another person. Like there are rules to reality, but not in dreams. And it seems like biology figured out a long time ago that reality is very limiting in terms of our ability to learn. Where, where it seems like we need to create a safe space where our brains can just be open and break the rules of reality to understand things about the world that don't fit in the rules. So is REM the only state of sleep that you dream in? Or do you also dream in, can you also dream in light and deep sleep as well? Yeah, you can dream in any sleep stage. Mm-hmm. The, the common wisdom is REM is dreams. REM mm-hmm. equals dreams. Yep. And that came from a set of experiments done back in like the 60s and 70s where they would wake people up out of REM sleep and they would always be reporting a dream. And when they wake someone up out of not REM sleep, they wouldn't report a dream. But you know, in the decades since, we've learned that as with everything else, the world is more complicated <laughs> and, and biology is much more complicated than simple yes or no. And so can you dream in other states? Yeah. Um, But honestly, dreams and non-REM sleep tend to be less emotional. They don't have plots and characters and complex connections. The dreams toward the beginning of the night are much less bizarre, a little more repetitious, a little more simple. Often it's like a single idea. Like it'll it'll be a single sort of relatively unemotional idea as opposed to REM dreams, especially the longer REM dreams later in the night that are that are the memorable ones, the ones that are worth writing down. And on the memorable part, why, why do I remember some of my dreams, but others I will maybe remember, you know, right when I wake, but then they completely drop out of my mind for the day. Is it has to do with how vivid they are or is it something really within the stage? Like why, why do we remember them? Yeah, it's about the stage where, where REM sleep itself. So when you're asleep, you don't form new memories. Um, you're working with the memories you got. You're not making any new memories at this point. Mm-hmm. So, which is also why you don't really perceive the passage of time when you're asleep. You're not building the memory of, of time passing. 
So in REM sleep also, REM does weird things with time. Like people have dreams that seem to last years, but it was only seven minutes mm-hmm. you know, of a REM episode. Or you can have dreams that seem to go on very long or very short, but really they were going on a lot. So time functions differently in, in REM sleep. I mean, just the rules of reality function differently. For that reason, you're, you're not forming new memories while you're in the dream, usually. Your memory is, is busy doing something else. So why do we sometimes remember them? Well, the main reason is that consciousness peeks its head in where it doesn't belong and, and peeks under the covers and says, hey, what you doing uh, when you wake up? And then, and then it sees the, the scene in front of it and, and there's a little bit of a memory trace and it encodes it because it sees it. Um, but because of the nature of, of REM-related memory formation is just so slippery that even still, even if you see it and you know you see it, it's really hard to hold on to. Yeah. Um, it's very hard, almost 100% of the time, to hold on to a dream with any, any level of completeness, uh, except for like the last few moments, because that's what was, we were most remembering. Um, so when you remember a dream, it probably means you woke up during it which is fine. There's nothing harmful about that. It's totally normal. Um, but um, there is a thing called lucid dreaming where you can be dreaming and have consciousness inside the dream without breaking the dream. Um, because consciousness and dream and the dream world don't go well together because consciousness, again, has to follow rules of reality and dreams do not. And so sometimes they tend to conflict with each other. But you can train someone to, to lucid dream to maintain consciousness and dreaming or recognize awareness of dreaming and and they might be able to remember them a little more um but that's a little more uncommon a lot of people don't know how to do that um but usually when people remember so people say i never remember my dreams i never dream it's like well no you just don't wake up from you wake up in other stages of sleep i will say you telling me that i'm paralyzed and that reality isn't real in my dreams is making me a little terrified of sleep (laughs) (laughs) isn't it amazing it's pretty isn't it so cool (laughs) and this is think about it that that every person does this multiple times a night for their entire life from the from their i well we don't know how when it starts Mm -hmm. what we do know is that when we're born we spend the majority of our time in what looks like the equivalent of REM sleep. Actually, we spend more time in what they, they call an active sleep in infants because REM doesn't quite form yet, like their eyes can be open even, uh, but they're asleep. Um, so, so infants spend more time in what looks like REM sleep than they do awake, like, you know, which is amazing. Like, what are they dreaming about? Are they dreaming? Like, what does an infant have to dream about? Mm-hmm. What experiences do they have? Um, why is it that they make emotional faces during active REM-like sleep before they make them when they're conscious. You know, they'll make, they'll smile when they're asleep before they do when they're awake. Um, you know, it, it figures so prominently in our brain development, and it's a pretty amazing thing. And so I'm curious, like, so, you know, most people report having a dream at some point in their life about, oh, I was suddenly back in school and I realized I had not studied for that <laughs> test and I was sitting in front of the test. For me, my equivalent stress dream is I'm supposed to catch a flight and I missed my flight and I keep waking up from that and go back to sleep and I still miss that flight. And where, where, where are those part of REM sleep? Is that something different? Why do we have those too? Yeah. So think about one way that I like to think about dreaming is dreams are you are witnessing, you are, you are eavesdropping 
um, and watching the brain speak to itself in its native language. You know, the brain, the language of the brain isn't words in linear order. The language of the brain is ideas, concepts, memories, feelings. How does the brain speak to itself um, in a way that it intrinsically knows it will understand? Because it's speaking to itself. And it speaks in images and words and ideas and metaphors. And, and so when we dream, we're, we're listening to the brain speak to itself in its own language. And so when we have a dream of, like for me, for me, one of the recurring dreams is I've got an exam. It's the end of the semester. I have not come to class at all, but I have a test. Am I ready to do it? Or, or, or hearkening back to my performance days where it's like, all right, show's going on. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, but you should, you remember your lines, like what lines mm-hmm. and like, okay, go, you know, like, or it's something like that. And it's because it's, it's sort of the brain saying, you know, that feeling you would get if you were in a room and you had to take a test and you didn't study for it, you know, that feeling that, that, that specific kind of anxiety and stress and anticipation with a little bit of confidence and then with, with, with what does that mean to you? And your brain is saying, you know, that feeling that's kind of like what it is I'm trying to say, you know? So like when people feel out of control in their life, they'll dream that they're in a car and the brakes go out or something. And, and that's the, their brain saying, you know, that feeling when you're in a car and the brakes go out and you have that panic and you don't know what's going to happen and da da like it, it, it it puts in a very, in an image, in a feeling, in a word, in a combination of those things, a message. It's not whether it's true or not. It's, it's just the brain saying that, that like, this is sort of how I feel about this. Or maybe this is how I don't feel. This is, do I feel this way about it? Or don't I feel this way about it? And, and maybe you're evaluating it or your, or your mind is playing it out and trying to see if it fits or see if it connects. Or maybe it doesn't. So I guess the answer to your question is, this is your own vocabulary. That's why when you have these books that say, well, when you dream of carpets, it means that, you know, you're, the, you're going to walk quietly in life. I, <laughs> I mean, like that's why there's no universal right. dream dictionary any more than there is universal consciousness. I mean, in cultures, we have universal ideas. Like I could say a car with no brakes, and you know exactly what that feeling is. Actually, you don't. You know what it means to you but it's probably similar enough to what it means to me that you know what I'm talking about. So in that sense, there might be universal, totally culture-bound and time-bound and whatever-bound ideas, but really it's, it's not about what the image is to everyone else. It's about what it means to you. So I'm curious, you know, a lot of people have trouble falling asleep as well. Yeah. Um, you know, how much of that's nature versus nurture? What, what, what? Yeah, why do people have trouble falling asleep? So, um, there's two kinds of insomnia. There's acute insomnia, where it's um, initial insomnia or or new insomnia, and then there's chronic insomnia. So there's a million causes of short-term new onset insomnia. There's a lot of things that can keep you up: stress, any something physical, anything that's a barrier to sleep, whether it's physical, emotional, mental, any of those things. Any of those things can be a barrier to sleep um, in the short term. Anything that creates activation when you're trying to go to sleep makes sleep more difficult. Some of that is of our own choosing. Um, These days, a lot of people have a hard time disconnecting 
especially from the news, because um, there's always new stuff. There's always something new. There's always something that seems to be important. And sometimes it's hard to disconnect and, and let it go. Um, and our culture in general is very bad at that. Uh, because we see sleep as unproductive time and we're trying to fit as much into every day as we can, we get into this, this frame of mind that I just, you know, you, you're, we, we become a glutton for the day and wakefulness and we want more and more and more of it. It's like we, we want to fill the day with as much as we can before we have to give it up. And really, it doesn't, the body doesn't work that way. I mean, if you're driving a car and you want to stop at an intersection, when do you start tapping the brakes? Well, as soon as you hit the stop sign? No, then you're going to be in the middle of the intersection. You're going to get hit. And that's what happens to people when they don't start disconnecting until after they're already in bed. And some of them don't start disconnecting until after they've been in bed because they bring their phone into bed and then decide to disconnect. These are people who didn't even tap the brakes till they were already halfway through the intersection. And, and if you blow through that stop sign, it's not your car's fault. It's your fault. And, and no one is going to expect that you're going to stop on a dime like that. You need to be able to slow down. And the faster you're going, the more lead time you need to give yourself to tap those brakes. And we as a society are just really bad at that. We, we don't have those skills about A, recognizing when to do it, and B, believing that there's, we should have to do that, uh, and also knowing what to do. Like, how does one tap the brakes? So I think culturally, we tend to be very bad at these things. But there's lots of things that can cause this activation. And, and, that's, and that what, that's what leads to short-term insomnia, especially people who say they get into bed and then they can't slow their mind down. Well, that's because, you know, that's like saying I got into the intersection and I can't slow the car down. It's like, well, when did you start braking? You know, maybe not soon enough. Maybe that's why you're still going. Um, or... What happens is this transition from short-term to long-term insomnia. So I said there's a million causes of short-term insomnia, but there seems to be one main cause of long-term insomnia, and that's what we call conditioned arousal. Uh, and really what that means is you inadvertently teach your mind to start going as soon as you get into bed. You inadvertently train yourself to wake up whenever you start trying to fall asleep. You, you start um, making it so that the act of falling asleep becomes difficult. Um, and you, you actually trained yourself to do that by accident, um, partially by repetition. You, every time when you get into bed, your mind is going, has a hard time slowing down, eventually you fall asleep. You get into bed, your mind's still going, has a hard time winding down, eventually you get into sleep over and over and over and over again. Your brain's a pattern recognition machine, right? It learns this pattern. It learns that, all right, I get into bed, my mind starts going, I'm tossing and turning, and I'm uncomfortable, and then I get back to sleep. And eventually you learn that when I get into bed, that's what's supposed to happen. So even people who say, oh, I'm exhausted, I'm nodding off on the couch, I can't, I can't keep my eyes open, I get into bed and I'm wide awake. Um, and that's why. That's one of the reasons why. One of my, one of my colleagues who's a fantastic uh, sleep clinician, her name's Lindsay Shaw, um, she taught me this saying, and I love it, is sleep is not something you do. Sleep is something that happens to you when the situation allows for it. The situation is complicated. It involves what time of day is it? How long have you been awake? Are the lights on? Is it loud in here? Have you been slowing? Have you been 
Have you disconnected a little bit? Are you relaxed? Is someone in the middle of talking to you? All, is it too hot? Is it, you know, all of these things are part of the situation. If the situation allows for sleep, you will sleep. If the situation does not allow for sleep, you won't. Some aspects of the situation you might be able to control, whether it's too hot or too cold, or did, should you have wound down earlier or whatever. Some aspects of the situation you might not be able to control, whether it's like an illness or, or physical discomfort, or say you slept in late and you woke up at noon and now you're trying to go to bed at 10 p.m. Well, there's nothing you can do about that. You have not been awake long enough for your circadian rhythm to kick in for sleep, for example. Um, so, so controlling the situation is limited to what you can control. Control what you can. If there's elements in the situation that you can't control, then don't try harder to sleep. You're just going to reinforce that connection even more. Actually, the answer is don't try to sleep. You, you, you've lost that battle. Um, better to just get up, try again when you're ready. You might sleep less that night, but what you're doing is you're not promoting this bed equals wakefulness and failure to sleep connection that can take on a life of its own. What are some of the tips you can give folks, you know, for how to have that sort of better sleep hygiene, whether like how many people always look at this practically, like how many hours should it be before I go to bed that I stop <laughs> looking at my phone? <laughs> when do I need to put my phone down? What else can I do to kind of hit the brakes before I go into that intersection? Um, some things that people can practice. Yeah, I would think that um, whatever it is, the last hour before you're trying to go to bed should be a protected time. I am not saying that you have to put your phone down an hour before getting into bed, because if I did, no one would listen to me <laughs> anyway. That's fine. But what's most important is that whatever it is you're doing in that time, if you then have to wind down from it, you're doing the wrong thing. You're so, this is supposed to be the time you're supposed to be winding down, processing your thoughts. If what you're doing is getting you worked up and then you have to wind down from whatever it is you're doing, you're doing the wrong thing. Um, so you don't have to be off your phone. Just don't be, whatever it is you're doing, don't be doing something that'll get you all worked up. Don't be doing something that's going to be so mentally engaging, you're not even going to notice an hour going by. Because if you're not noticing the passage of time, you're also not noticing your eyes getting tired. You're not noticing your body getting sleepy. You're not noticing all of these other signals from your body. You're not paying attention. Um, so if you're someone who needs to be on your phone close to bedtime, um, the one technique I have, it works really well, but you're going to hate it, is if you have a hard time putting your phone down, um, stand. Stand up on your phone. And then, because then what's going to happen is by standing, you don't totally lose touch with your body. Mm-hmm. Where, because at some point you're going to be, you're, you're either going to say, "Oh my gosh, I've been standing here for too long. I look ridiculous," or you're going to say, "I really want to sit down right now. Why do I have to keep standing?" Right. Both of those are a signal that your body is telling you you're done. You can put it down now. Saying that was just distracting. What's one final thing you'd like to kind of leave our listeners with in terms of like, hey, this is a cool thing about sleep that I bet you never knew. Um. The most useful thing I think is for people to think about their sleep not as a cost, but as an investment. And this is what I mean. A lot of people, they get to the end of the day and their decision on sleep is how much time do I have left to sleep before I have to wake up the next morning? How much time do I have left to spend on sleep? And in that way, um, 
they see sleep as a, as a cost that they're trying to minimize of time. And, and often it's because people feel like they don't have enough time. But actually, I would challenge them to see sleep as an investment, just like exercise. Exercise takes time and it takes effort, but you get more out of it. And so rather than thinking, how much time do I have left to sleep tonight? The question should be, how engaged, refreshed, and productive do I want to be tomorrow? Do I need to be tomorrow? That should dictate when I should be going to bed tonight. Um, sleep is an investment in your own well-being and your health in your mental functioning, in your physical functioning. And maybe part of the reason you don't feel like you have time is because you're inefficient because you're not getting enough sleep. Um, and what if I can give you that time back? And, and that's what I would challenge people to think about, sleep as an investment in their next day rather than the expense at the end of the current day. We shouldn't be living paycheck to paycheck with our sleep. You know, we should be investing and living more comfortably. That's a really great insight. Uh, thank you, Dr. Grander. I, I really appreciate your time. Yeah, thanks so much. No, thanks for having me. Thank you.